now uh, we will read the scripture from Revelation 14, 6 through 20. So they may be in your Bibles or they may be in the bulletin. I don't know. But Revelation chapter 14, 6 through 20. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and to tribe, language, and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. Behold, the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second angel, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made the nations drink the wine of her passion and her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, from their deeds follow them, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice, to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire, And he called with a loud voice to the one with the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grapes of the harvest and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle, for 600 miles. The word of God for the people of God. I'm sad this fog machine's not working today because usually I like to be introduced through that. That's okay. Um, it's good to be here with you all. Uh, I don't know if anyone else noticed how eerily quiet it was while we were doing the uh, prayer, but it was kind of it's kind of nice. It's a good change of pace. Um, but uh, I hope that uh, you all are having 
a good weekend and a good day. I'm glad that you're here to worship with us. Uh, for those who are visiting or those who are new, uh, this passage is probably a little bit startling uh, because at first read and at first glance, as Frankie and I read it for the first time this week, we kind of were like, what do we do with this and how do we plan a worship service around God's wrath and his wrath being poured out on sin and on evil? But as I believe in every chapter of Scripture, um, there is good news. There is good news here. It's leading us to good news, to something we all need to pay attention to this morning. There is a vision for something beautiful and redemptive that we can all understand here, even though, as Josh read that, you're thinking rivers of blood and horses' bridles and 200 miles of it and sickles and harvesting. What in the world does that mean for me? Uh, that's, that's what I love about my job. I get to get up here and talk to you about how rivers of blood is one of the best things you'll ever hear about this week, uh, because from it comes something really beautiful and awesome that God is doing, and uh, we need to remember that when John was writing this, there is something to be decoded, but it's to be decoded by using Scripture itself, so we need the Old Testament. That's why he references the Old Testament more than any other book in the Bible. Some 600 times it's, it's referenced. Remember, John is trying to get his letter past guards, Roman guards, who if they read what he was really trying to say about Nero and about Roman emperors being the oppressors and the Roman government being a kingdom that needs to be overthrown, they would have ripped those letters up and they never would have seen the light of day. So John brilliantly, through the power of the Spirit, uses this symbolism from the Old Testament so that his Jewish audience, when they read about harvesting and sickles and they read about these angels and Babylon the Great and these kinds of different things, they would have a reference point for those things. Because what John is actually talking about in Revelation 14 is a fulfillment of two particular passages in the Old Testament that they would have gone to, which is Joel chapter 3 and Isaiah chapter 63. And we'll get into those um, as we move along here. But please remember that. That's one reason at first glance these things seem to be confusing, but we're going to unpack the entirety of the scriptures together and connect it all to help it make sense for us. So let me, let me pray and we'll get started. Lord, I do thank you that uh, you have given us your word to uh, study and examine that it's, it's inexhaustible. It's so deep and rich uh, that we get the privilege to spend our lives understanding what this means for us. Some of us come into this room um, confused, we don't really know what we believe, uh, or we're new to it, or we're struggling in our belief, we're struggling with doubt, Lord, I pray that your spirit might give clarity this morning. Uh, for those who need to hear good news because they've been dealing with a lot of bad news and struggle, I pray that you lift their spirits by showing us that you are not indifferent to evil. In fact, you seek through your wrath and anger, to eradicate it, to give us an existence, an eternal existence, void of all evil and suffering. That while we struggle through suffering now, it is momentary and light compared to the eternal weight of glory. Give us that eternal hope this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if any of you all uh, came across this video uh, via Twitter this week. I'm not really a, a Twitter guy, but uh, someone sent me this video, and I found it to be very heartwarming. It's of this little kid in his karate class 
trying to kick a board in half. Jonah knows what I'm talking about because he reads the same blogs I do. Um, did anybody else see this? Yeah. It was very heartwarming, very cute. And the, I, what drew me to it was the title, Pure Perseverance. And I thought, this is going to end well. Uh, and so you watch this little kid, and the teacher's in front of him. The class is full of parents that are looking on, so there's a lot of stress and pressure. And uh, he's got his little classmates sitting around him in the circle. And the, the teacher's on one knee, and he's holding the board, and he's just like, Streaming, screaming encouragement to this little six-year-old. And the six-year-old tries to kick it. The first time he kicks it, it just like his foot just bounces off of it. And you're like, there's no way this kid's breaking this thing. And he actually falls down after the first kick. And one of his friends sweetly grabs him by the collar and picks him up so he can keep trying. While the teacher is saying, you got this, you can do it. And he's, and he's trying to reposition him in the right position so that he can actually break this thing. And everyone's for him. Uh, but he tries again, and he tries again, and he gets to the point where he tries to kick it, and he starts just weeping. He just starts crying. He's like, he's so embarrassed. He's so frustrated with the struggle. And finally, the teacher repositions him in the right position and says, give it one more try. You can do this. And somehow, the kid who keeps trying and keeps struggling kicks the board, and he breaks it in two. And the sweet, heartwarming part of it is, one, that he succeeds despite those six failed attempts, but also the way the whole room just erupts around him and celebrates him, and they're so happy for him. Um, if you just Google six-year-old karate kid uh, breaking wooden board, you'll find that somewhere online. Um, but as I watched that, I thought, you know, because I'm stu- yeah, everything I'm reading, I'm filtering through what I'm trying to prepare for for a sermon. As I saw that, I thought, you know what? That is the perfect illustration of the church. That kid is the church. He is struggling along, failed attempt after failed attempt in all its imperfection, with the teacher screaming and communicating constant, constant flow of encouragement to him that he can persevere, that he will overcome. And while it oftentimes leads the church to the point of tears, and to the point of embarrassment even, as the world looks on and wonders, what in the world is the church doing? The church is never going to succeed against the world. And yet, we're told here in Revelation chapter 14, after what Jeff preached about last week, Jeff, great job, thank you so much, he set the stage for this military um, procession of this victory procession with Jesus and this army of people that he has saved coming behind him to take possession of the new heavens and the new earth, this greater promised land, this greater city. And during that procession, when they will take ownership of that city that we all long for and wait for, wickedness and evil will also be eradicated from that place. There will be no more pain or tears. You know, there's these cycles of redemptive history going on in Revelation, and this is one of those cycles. This is actually the first time, though, we get to see the the end of the cycle with Jesus actually arriving. So all the other cycles have gotten us to the point where Jesus is going to come. This is Jesus actually coming. This is what happens when Jesus comes and what it means for believers and non-believers. Those who are under the curse because they don't trust in Jesus as the Lord and Savior and those who have been delivered from the curse. Those who will pass through the judgment unscathed and those who will not, who will bear the full brunt of this judgment, this this final judgment. And God is guaranteeing to us in Revelation chapter 14, the church will prevail. 
No matter how much we suffer or struggle, the end, in the end, it will all be worth it. There will be pure perseverance, if you will. And so, John is encouraging us that the more we struggle, actually, the sweeter it makes the victory when it comes. The more you see that little karate kid struggle, the greater the celebration is when he finally succeeds. The more we struggle, it is working a purpose. It is doing something to create an incredible victory, which we are guaranteed here. Although we don't taste it, we feel like it's far away, we wonder how it's going to happen, it is guaranteed here in Revelation chapter 14. John is encouraging the church that is struggling, even to the point of tears, that the day will come when we will struggle no more, when evil will be eradicated. That's the amazing and heartwarming picture John's giving us. And here's the deal. You probably heard this passage read, and you're wondering, that's not very heartwarming. Where's the joy and the heartwarming message in that? And that's a good and appropriate question, and I'm excited to unpack it. So we're going to unpack it by answering three other questions. What is good about this eternal gospel that's talked about here in the first few verses? What is the blessing in death? Did you notice it said that? Blessed are the dead in Christ Jesus. What is the blessing in death? This thing we all fear. How is fear taken away from death? And then what is this river of blood all about? Okay. What's good about this eternal gospel? Um, I think as you're reading this, I thought to myself, I've got a, one of the hardest things to deal with in Christianity is God's wrath. And this is God's wrath being poured out, but it's being poured out after this announcement of an eternal gospel for all of creation to see. So this angel comes out of the temple. There's this symbolic scene, this vision of an angel coming out of a temple, and he's announced, or coming out of heaven, and he's announcing to the whole world, look up and see this eternal gospel, this banner over all creation. And from that is, come, is going to come redemption and peace forever. But in order for that to happen, there needs to be this final judgment, this final eradication of all things that are evil, that are not meant to be in this final place with God's people. And God's wrath is really the one attribute of God that most people either don't want to talk about at best, because we don't really know how to deal with it or communicate it, or we reject Christianity altogether for at worst. Some people don't believe in Christianity. They get to the God of love, and then they start hearing about the wrath, and they're like, I can't go there. I can't reconcile that there's a God of love who is also a God who gets angry. How do we reconcile those two attributes of God into good news? I think it's much easier to just focus on the loving attributes of God. The message of this eternal gospel, as the angel says, is fear God and give Him glory. Because the hour of judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Here's what that means. The gospel literally means good news. This good news is an eternal message of hope that has existed for all time. It's eternal like God because it emanates from him in the revelation of his character. And what is his wrath precisely? We typically think of God's wrath as his anger and his anger as we do our own anger. For God to pour out his wrath seems to us to be a time when he'll go all nuclear on creation and rage against those who reject him. Here's a better way to think about God's wrath, okay? 
and how we reconcile the two. There's a few authors I read this week, and I kind of compiled this all into one quote, and I'll just read it to you because I think it's really helpful. It says, you see, inside Western culture, the idea of God's wrath is not plausible. Now, in the secular age we live in of subjective morals, where we are, we are our own judges, the concept of judgment in general and wrath in particular is antithema. It's hated. It's offensive to us. So instead of throwing away God's judgment and wrath, we instead explain it away through the lens of love. You notice how sensitive we are to being judged. It's the one thing that we kind of have to, the caveat we have to give to a lot of things, don't judge me. Because the worst thing we could do in our culture to each other is judge each other. At least that's what we think. It's the, one of the most offensive things you can do. Indifference and tolerance is actually not the demonstration of love. Anger is the demonstration of love. Indifference and tolerance is not. Anger is. Anger against what is wrong is love. People say, I believe in a God of love, not a God who gets angry. Well, if you have a God who never gets angry, you can't have a God of love. Because if you never, ever get angry about anything, you don't love anything. Amen. Think about that. Think about the people you love the most. The, peop- the person I get the most angry with in my life, I don't know if she knows this, it's my wife. Because I love her more than anyone else in this world. I get really angry at my children because I love them so much. You only get angry about the things that you love or when those things that you love are threatened by injustice or tyranny. So God gets angry at the evil that threatens his church. And he plans to pour his wrath out on it. If you love and see the thing you love threatened, you're angry. If you're indifferent, you're not in love. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. True love always gets angry. Anger in its uncorrupted origin is just loved this is just love moved to deal with a threat to someone you love. Anger at its uncorrupted origin is just love moved to deal with a threat to someone you love. It's okay to be angry. Now, sometimes that makes us do bad things that aren't okay. But anger itself is not sinful. It's not wrong. So it's not wrong for God to be angry because God is perfect and good. And he gets angry at the things that threaten other people experiencing his love. God's wrath is not like our wrath. The scriptures tell us this. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, the reason I think we really struggle with God's anger is because the way our anger manifests itself. My children, when they get angry, they kick and scream and cry, and it's uncontrollable. That's not God's anger. Think about it this way. God's anger is not an intense, irrational outburst of hate from from him. God's wrath is referring to a strong and settled opposition against everything that is evil and a zeal for all that is good. It is his setting everything right. That is how his wrath and his anger works. Without it, things are not set right because things have been set wrong in motion since the garden in the beginning and the fall of man. That's what we believe as Christians. It explains existence. It explains the sadness and the disappointment 
and things not working as, as we think they should because we believe that the world has fallen, that we are sinful, we are born into sin, we are sinful people in need of the redeeming love of Jesus Christ. And the world is hopeless without it. The eternal good news is that amazingly, God does not demonstrate his love by being angry with his people. Instead, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, the ones who deserve the anger of his love, Christ died for us. God himself received the anger of his love. That's the banner you're covered under as someone who trusts in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you will pass through this great judgment. But there is a choice. If you reject God because you can't deal with his wrath and anger, or on the basis of his wrath and anger, if you aren't covered under the banner of his love, then you are exposed to this terrible day of judgment. This is what awaits you. And you might say, well, that seems really unfair. We have a choice. God has revealed himself to you through creation. He's revealed himself to you through relationship. He's revealed himself to you through seeing how fallen and broken the world is. And you can turn from that, from yourself, believing you are your own God in control of your own life, and you can save yourself to this God of love and redemption. And he only asks that you receive it. As we talked about last week, he doesn't ask that you actually earn it and work for it, but that you surrender and receive it. No other religion tells you that. No other religion is offering you that. Because it's false. God has done all that is necessary to save his people through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The second angel comes and he reinforces the hope of what's to take place. He says, Babylon, this great city of evil that's caused you all to sin, it's going, it's going down. All these, all these earthly kingdoms that have been corrupted by sin and evil, they're going away. And there's going to be one final city and one final great kingdom. Then a third angel announces that those who choose the way of the beast, again, we have a choice, those who choose the way of the beast over the way of the lamb will also not be spared God's wrath. They are not covered by Jesus' sacrifice. There is no assurance for them. This is to be the most feared reality of all. There's no rest for those who do not find their rest in Jesus. There is only anguish, especially when the full reality of what they missed out on is revealed to them. So which will it be? The way of the beast or the way of the lamb? It's obvious. It doesn't need over-explaining. Receive the way of the lamb. Receive the way of service and love and grace and mercy and kindness and goodness. Joy. Because it leads to a blessing in death. And that's the, that's the second question. What is this blessing in death? As, as he removes the fear of what evil can do to you, and he reveals that your suffering actually has purpose, there's an even greater reality that even death itself will not have the final say. That the thing we all fear the most need not be feared because there's blessing in it. Because what Jesus did is he turned that curse. Now, death was a curse for sin in the garden. Man sinned, God said, you're going to die. But God in his mercy gave that curse. Because death is actually a blessing. So that we don't have to live in an eternally fallen world. So there will be an end to it. Both when he comes in the final judgment forever and even in this life, we will be delivered from this life 
When we are away from the body, Paul tells us we are present with Jesus. And we will receive rest. It says, I heard, verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. That's interesting. Your deeds follow you into heaven. That's two things about that. One, they're following you. They're not leading you. You know what's leading you to heaven? The deeds of someone else. The deeds of Jesus. So that your deeds that follow you matter. We are storing up treasures in heaven. This is how Christianity works. You're not getting into those gates by bringing your works first. You're getting in those gates when he asks why you deserve to be there because of the works of Jesus and the deeds of Jesus. But you will receive reward because of the works and the good things you did in this life. That's what that's saying. They do matter. And in death, we will receive the reward of our works and we will receive rest. That's why Paul says to live as Christ and to die as gain. I am torn between the two. You think about all the exhaustion and the fear and the discontentment that we feel presently because we're all searching to find favor and acceptance in things of this world, in your work, in a relationship, or whatever. And you will receive rest from those things. You will be blessed. You will receive the favor of God. You will live in the full assurance of the favor of God. That, that means you will receive the full assurance that God likes you. Because your good works and your bad works are playing this game in your heart and your soul where you're not sure where you stand in the eyes of God. And one day you feel really good about it and the next day you feel awful and you don't deserve it and you don't know if God loves you, and you and, or you think he loves you but you don't know if he likes you. That's what I really struggle with. The greatest rest we will receive is we will live in the full favor of God. Think about that. If you knew 150% in this moment that God loves you and likes you and is fully pleased with you, how would that change your struggle and what you're looking for? It should change everything. If you want to know what hell's like, John gives us the clue here. The ultimate punishment for sin is to not have rest. It's to be tormented by the fact that you don't know where you stand in the eyes of God. Forever. And death can deliver us into torment or into a great blessing of rest. I'm tired. A lot of times we're exhausted. I feel like we might be in the hardest phase of life that Americans can go through, raising three young kids. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe it'll get harder. It feels really hard right now. I love that there's a promise of rest. Here's the question. How can we experience that rest now? We have to experience it in the church. This is the closest taste that this kingdom that is coming, while we all have that to look forward to, there is a life we have to live now. And that's why we have the church. That's why the church matters. That's why you need to be at church. That's why you need to be involved in the church. It's so that we can experience tastes of this rest. Rest through encouragement, through offering forgiveness for one another. 
And think about the rest you receive just from hearing you're forgiven. Or if you know you've wronged someone and you're in their debt and that debt is forgiven. That's what we need to be offering each other and offering the world. Taste of this eternal rest in how we treat each other and our families and our children. One thing that's become abundantly clear to me over the last few months, I don't know why it's becoming clear 12 years into ministry, uh, full-time vocational ministry, uh, is that almost anything good and worth doing, especially in service to someone else, is rarely, if ever, convenient. That ministry and Christianity is inconvenient. And that part of the reason I struggle to be satisfied in living as a Christian is because I expect it to be convenient. And it's not. Finally starting to understand how badly I misunderstood the nature of the work I signed up for. And part of my biggest problem is that I expected it to be convenient. And what I've discovered is that the most rewarding parts of my job and my life in general never come conveniently. Being a blessing to your neighbor or family or friends is not convenient. And if you're expecting it to, you're not going to enjoy the Christian life. To you, the Christian life probably has seemed really disappointing if you're expecting convenience. Because there is a rest that we will experience, not now, not in full, but that will come. And a lot of the times the Christian life now is not very restful. So, everything we've done with a sincere heart, our works matter. They do follow us. God does take notice of them. And then we come to uh, this final part of the passage. This, what is this river of blood about? Um, where it talks about God or Jesus being um, given the authority here before all of creation as this angel flies out of the temple calling with a loud voice, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come. There's two reapings that happen, two harvests. One is for those who, who trust in Jesus. So when he comes on that final day, he's going to gather all of his people together. And they're going to be safe under the shelter of his wings. They're going to pass through. They're going to experience this judgment, but they're going to pass through it unscathed by it. They're not going to be receiving the due punishment for their sins. But then there's another reaping that happens, and Jesus is responsible for that reaping as well. He is the final judge. And he reaps together those who do not trust in him, those who do not find their shelter under his wings. And for them, it says, the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it in the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, six feet high at least, for 1,600 stadia, which is 200 miles. So again, this is not literal. This is a symbolic vision of how pervasive evil is and the type of punishment it needs in order to be eradicated. And that God is not indifferent to it. That he will crush it underneath his foot. And that if you are not safe underneath the sacrifice he made in being crushed himself, then you will be crushed under the weight of your sin. He, through his sacrifice on the cross, has removed the burden of our sin but if you do not trust in that and believe in that, then you are still under the weight and the burden of that, that sin that you carry. But you can relinquish it. But if you don't, then this is what awaits. This horrific vision of blood flowing through the streets 
You know, it's 1,600 stadia. Again, numbers matter in Revelation. It's, it's the square of four, which is squared by ten. It's four is the four corners of the earth. It's saying this is going to be, and ten is the number of completeness. It's saying this is going to cover and eradicate all the evil all over creation. That's the significance of even putting a number to it. It will be complete. It will be final. It will cover all of the evil all in every crevice. will be cleaned out and removed. It says it will happen outside of the city. That's actually really important because that's where Jesus was crucified. And the, and the Christians knew that. That's where condemnation and punishment and execution happened, outside the city. And that is the place where judgment and condemnations happen. Jesus was crucified outside, outside the city. That's also where Jesus will go to judge the wicked. Those who spurn the truth will suffer an exclusion which reflects Jesus' own exclusion that he felt on the cross. And John sees a vision of this awful day in the form of a man crushing grapes in the wine press. And you see that this, those who refuse the first judgment, which is Jesus' judgment that he received, those who say, that doesn't count for me, they come under this second terrible judgment. How are we removed from that judgment? That's a good question to close with. How, do, how can we be assured of that? It's through confession. It's through repentance. It's through faith. It's through trusting that Jesus has done the work for us. And some of us need to be reoriented to that because we're struggling to try to justify ourselves out in the world every day. And we need to be reminded that your work and your successes and your failures don't justify you before this God. You are justified by the works of Jesus. If you reject that, if it means nothing to you, then you have God's wrath to look forward to in a place where you will get what you want, which is to be without him forever. And that choice will not end well, according to the, of Christianity. And the good news is that there's a choice to surrender to this conquering king and enter into his courts as citizens of a kingdom that is to come in all its fullness and glory at the end. And you can choose that this morning. Let's pray.